So if you are able, if you will stand with me in honor of God's word, and we will read um, from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will speak to us today through your word, um, through Ryan, through your servant, that you will use his weakness um, to speak to us. God, that we will know you better through your word being preached today. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to all that you have for us in this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. I say you know you got a good one. She prays that you'll use his weakness. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, part of what we're doing in this series, too, is we're having an art exhibit, and you have to, each Sunday we're going to bring somebody up. You have to interpret the piece of artwork. I'm going to give you a hint for the first one. That's not a mushroom, okay? you got to figure that out. Uh, in all seriousness, as we get into the Gospel of Mark today, we're going to do a little bit of contextual work to tie the pieces together to help make the story more meaningful as we look at uh, the writer or the author himself. But before we get into that, I've got a little bit of family business uh, to just kind of handle. So if you're here visiting, uh, bear with us for just a second. Um, um, I, you know, I have a quick plea for you. We as a church uh, have said that, that our people are at their best um, when they're serving on one of our ministry teams. The best kind of community is built around service. And so, we, you know, we have this amazing kids ministry team that we've had. We have these beautiful young people that we're responsible for. I mean, nearly 200 of them in the church. And we need a handful more people to say, yes, uh, I care about the next generation. And yes, uh, I, I'm willing to serve 90 minutes a month, 18 hours a year to help the next generation follow Jesus more closely. Um, so we're seeking to fill out our new City Kids team a little bit more uh, for this season of our ministry, but also as we open up our next uh, building over here so that we can offer more service uh, to the community and more uh, service to, to, to those in our church. And here's the deal. I know it's not convenient, but nothing in life uh, that's really worth it is ever convenient, right? Um, and so, you know, I've been praying this week uh, since I found out that we needed some more folks. And, you know, the scriptures say, you know, you have not because you ask a lot. So I'm asking the Lord, hey, how, Lord, how will you provide for us? And he said, ask your people, right? And so here's what I'm asking you. If you're interested in just taking the next step and exploring more about how to serve with our New City Kids uh, ministry team, uh, just scan this QR code right here. It's going to pop up on the screen right there. There we go. I love it when that happens. Um, scan that code. And listen, honestly, we need about 15 more people. So if you've got a little bit of time, um, you'd be willing to sacrifice. You don't even have to miss a service. Uh, we are committed to the next generation, and we want to do it well. And so I want to invite you to do that. Reach out to Kelly. Reach out to Ann. 
uh, as we seek to fill out our team a little bit, um, because we have a, a huge responsibility and a stewardship uh, to serve the next generation. So uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's the family business. Everybody get it? Got it? Let me try again. Everybody get it? Thank you. Let's go. All right. So um, we uh, are starting this new uh, uh, series of messages through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and the Gospel of Mark is an account of Jesus's life that is full of action. Um, the, the transitional word immediately occurs 40 times in the Gospel of Mark because Mark is about this fast-paced nature about who Jesus really is and what he really came and did. <clears throat> if you're not buckled up, you could miss the main point altogether. Um, so we just finished the book of Romans. And we indicated that in the book of Romans, that, that it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches that were in Rome, uh, which was the most global city in the world at the time. And it was written around the year of AD 56 or so. So at that time, the, the emperor Nero was in command and he made it incredibly difficult for followers of Jesus to follow Jesus in the city of Rome. In fact, in response to the great fire uh, of Rome in AD 64, he, you know, of course, blamed it on Christians and may have, in fact, set it on fire himself, uh, as, as people have seen. Um, but, but he made it so difficult for people to follow Jesus. He would do things like this. He would put wild animal skins on Christians and let feral dogs loose to attack them. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Um, he, would, he, would, he, would, um, he would put pitch and tar on Christians, and he would, he would put them up on a post and set them on fire as torches for his parties. He would crucify other Christians. In fact, the Apostle Peter is said to be crucified uh, under, under the, the, the reign of Nero, and Peter uh, responded to to that crucifixion with, I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus did, and said that he was crucified upside down. Now, why do I share this with you as we open the gospel of Mark? Because it gives shape to the immediacy of Mark and ties it with our last study as well. There was a need to make the account of Jesus's life readily available for the church. See, in Rome at this time, Peter is still alive, and he's in Rome at this time, Paul's in Rome at this time, and three things are happening that you need to pay attention to. The first one is this. The church is growing rapidly in diversity in every single way, right? Eyewitnesses of Jesus' of Jesus's resurrection are harder than ever to come by because they're dying, because they're being persecuted. Thirdly, Nero's persecuting the church ferociously. Up until this point, the gospel story had been uh, able to be protected from all these false narratives that would come in and try to hijack the story of what Jesus did. Because there were so many eyewitnesses around that could refute the false evidence. If someone were to say that this guy that rose from the dead was actually a double of Jesus, someone could say, no, I know this about Jesus. He's got a birthmark on his leg right here, right? I mean, they could say those things because they were there. They, 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 were, they witnessed the life of Jesus. So it was time at this point in history for the, 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 the times and the work of Jesus and his life to be recorded so that it could be uh, preserved over time so that we could have that. Now, there are four gospel accounts written. Mark was the very first. So imagine it like this. Followers of Jesus 
together in secret in Rome, right? One of the places they would gather is, is uh, in the catacombs outside the city of Rome, which were these underground burial places that look like this. I've actually had the opportunity to tour a catacomb in Rome before, but there were these burial places where they would bury Christians outside of the city gates. Now, in these catacombs, there were kind of open spaces, like you see, like corridors, and Christians would gather there for worship so that they could worship the Lord freely without fear of being persecuted in those places. So, so imagine putting yourself there in that, in that situation, and it's there that you hear for the first time the account of the gospel of Mark being read to you hot off the press. So you're among these dead Christians that you can certainly smell, right? And you're hearing about the life that Jesus brings. So, so who is Mark is the question, right? Who is this guy? He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Who was he? Well, it's almost unanimously agreed upon that Mark, John Mark, um, was a, kind of a secretary or an assistant to the apostle Peter. So basically what you have in the gospel of Mark is Mark documenting and writing all of the things that Peter, the apostle, one of the inner three, said about the life and times of Jesus Christ and his preaching and his conversations. It's basically the gospel of Peter. Now, now John Mark also is a character in some other ways. Uh, he's the same guy that ended up causing a split between Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. We're told uh, things were really tough uh, when they were in ministry in Cyprus on their, on their first missionary journey. And, uh, and that Mark, Mark got a little soft on him, right? John Mark, he kind of he gave up when things were hard and he went back home. And Paul's, you can imagine how Paul would respond to that, right? He's not happy. And so when the sec, time for the second missionary journey comes around, Barnabas is like, hey, you know, let's bring John Mark along. And Paul's like, absolutely not, right? This guy left us. He's not coming with us. And this agreement gets so big that they actually have to split ways. Now, now providentially, what that means for the kingdom of God is that double the gospel ministry was happening now, right? Um, but John Mark went with Barnabas instead. But the cool thing about this is that when Paul writes 2 Timothy, when he's in Rome toward the end of his life, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, he says bring John Mark along with you. He's very useful to me in the ministry. So there we have it, this kind of reconciled relationship between Paul. He's with Peter. He's with Barnabas. He's among the spiritual giants of the day, and he is the author of the gospel of Mark. He's our author. So that's the setup. That's the context of the author of who wrote this. Now, Mark distills Peter's account and teaching of Jesus into this eyewitness testimony about who Jesus really is. Now, Nearly everyone has an idea of who Jesus is to them, right? Whether it was my senior class that fronted the classic T-shirt that looked like this that said, Jesus is my homeboy. So what we wanted, my senior, I didn't ever have this shirt, by the way, just, just so you know. But what we wanted was a Jesus we could just kick it with, right? We didn't want a Jesus that would rebu rebuke us and call us out and call us to repentance. We wanted Jesus the friend of sinners, Right? But that's not all that Jesus was, right? Um, you know, or, you know, maybe you've seen Talladega Nights and you want the six-pound, eight-ounce, golden fleece diaper baby Jesus, right? I don't know the shape of the Jesus that you want, but everyone wants to imagine a Jesus that they can shape into their own image, to the image that 
most comfortably fits our own lifestyle. But a Jesus that we define is absolutely no Jesus at all, church. We need a Savior that can change us. We need a Savior that can challenge us, a Savior that can empower us, lead us to transformation. We need Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's where Mark chapter 1 opens up. Now, here's our big idea for today. There's something really significant about this word, the wilderness, that I'm going to explore in just a minute. But the only way that any of us get to meet King Jesus is through the wilderness. So I'm not going to get to that in the first point, but the second and third points is going to be kind of key here. So here's our outline if you're a note taker. We're going to look at who is the king. Secondly, we're going to look at where do we find the king. And thirdly, we're going to ask ourselves, how do we follow the king? So let's dig into that. Who is the king? Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You know, so in the Old Testament... The promise of the Messiah was given in Genesis, and we talked about it uh, last week, that, you know, the snake crusher that we talked about, that promise that there would be a Messiah of the offspring of Eve that would come and ultimately conquer evil. So throughout the pages of the prophets and the details surrounding the fulfillment of that promise, you know, we're, 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 we're gathering more and more about how significant Jesus is. But before this, God goes silent on his people for four hundred years. There are no new prophets. There are no prophetic promises during those 400 years, and we call it the intertestamental period. But that is until the silence is broken 400 years later, and it comes from the mouth of Jesus's cousin, John, or his nickname, John the Baptist or Baptizer. I'm pretty sure he wasn't Southern Baptist, but anyway. Um, that, that is where Mark's gospel enters in, breaking the 400 years of silence. And, and here's, here's what Mark 1 says. It's jam-packed. Don't just like curse, have a cursory reading over it. It's, it's significant. Here's how he opens the account of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What, is, what a statement. He doesn't ease in. He doesn't ease in with the genealogy, kind of warming up the Jews. No, he goes straight for it, right? So, so what's he mean with this? Let's break it down. Mark, first thing that Mark's doing is he's introducing a new literary style into the canon of scripture, right? It's not a poem. It's not wisdom literature. It's not just historical details. It's not an allegory or just a didactic letter. It's the gospel, meaning this. It's an eyewitness, basically transcript of the life of Jesus. So if someone were to come to Mark and say, who is Jesus? This is what Mark wrote down. The beginning, it says. So, so what's that sound like? That, that harkens us back to Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? It sounds like the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation. Mark is indicating that the gospel narrative he's giving is as foundational to the Christian faith as the early chapters of Genesis are to our faith. That, that, that this is now the path of becoming a new spiritual creation. God is spiritually remaking our hearts and our world through the work of Jesus. Jesus is now the foundation of the new beginning that we all long for in this life. Now, this, this new beginning is based on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, not just any Jesus. Jesus was a, a name of the day, right? It's a name today. Jesus the Christ, right? Right? So, you know, maybe you think Jesus Christ was his last name. No, it was a title, right? 
It was, he was, it meant, and, and, and the title means this, anointed king. So Jesus, the savior is what Jesus means, the, the anointed king. So Jesus, the anointed king is the title that we're given for the son of God, who was a man that walked on this earth that Peter ate meals with. This is who Peter is testifying about. In God becoming man, or as we would call this theologically, the incarnation, right? He was God incarnate. Two seemingly uh, detached or unattached realities are colliding in Jesus. Usually we think about the temporal, things that are temporary, and the eternal, things that last forever. Usually we think in, in, in the broken and the perfect. Usually we think in the unapproachable and the approachable or the real and the ideal. And God becoming man has fused these two diametrically opposing realities together in one person for us. It's in the incarnation. And if you really stop to consider the significance of God becoming man, it will absolutely change your life. But we're so familiar with the story that it loses its impact. Tim Keller talks about a few ways in a sermon that I listened to that he preached recently uh, about the, the, how the incarnation will change us. He says a couple things that I'll mention. The first one is this. It changes the drive shaft of our hearts when you consider the impact of the incarnation. So what's a drive shaft in a vehicle? It's the piece of machinery that converts the, the power that the engine produces to actual movement in your life, right? The motor can rev all day long, right? Uh, but unless the drive shaft is connected to the transmission and the rear differential and the axle, the car is not going anywhere. So the incarna incarnation is now empowering our decisions and behavior in this life when we really consider what Jesus has done. He describes that most all of humanity, Keller does in the sermon I listened to, uh, has a typically unnamed drive for why they do what they do in life. And do you know what the most basic drive for most of humanity is? Fear. Fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of failure. Fear of not being enough. Fear of getting it wrong. Or if you're like me, fear of being alone, right? It's a core fear of mine. But when God chooses to enter into the brokenness of the world to submit himself to obey the conditions of the world and to suffer from its consequences, he chooses to see each and every one of us and to love us. Because he's come near, it means that he loves us. He's made like us in every way, as the scriptures say. So when, by faith, you really believe that you're seen that you're chosen and that you're loved and that you're forgiven, here's what happens. Fear loses its power. 1 John 4, a verse that we quote probably once a month, right? Perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is the essence of perfect love and his incarnation as the king coming to save and rescue us is where the power comes from. And it changes us. 
Mark 1.1 is the declaration of the arrival of perfect love. He really came. How would you live if fear wasn't the driving force of your life? How would your life be different? What would it look like for you to be driven by the fruit of the spirit of God's love in your life, which is joy? What would it look like for you to be driven by joy for what Christ has done for you instead of fear of what you feel like you're getting wrong? That's a whole different way to live that God offers us. It changes the drive shaft of your heart, the motivations of your heart. Many Christians are Christians by name and not Christians by motivation. We are invited to be Christians who are motivated by the actual essence and power of Jesus himself, which is the gospel. And that changes everything. Second thing we see this is that it resources us for suffering. So the king, Jesus, came for a cross, not a throne yet anyway, right? He came for a cross, not a throne. Kings don't usually come for crosses. In fact, in the history of the world, they never have, right? They come for thrones. They come for power. They come for themselves most of the time. But Jesus came for others. He's on the throne, and we will one day gather around it in eternity, and we'll see him high and raised, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But for now, he took a cross, and that changes everything for us. So, so how, does he, how does it change us? Well, it changes how he relates to us as his people. He relates, one of the predominant ways that Jesus relates to us is through his suffering. Why? Because we are all suffering to some degree the effects of this fallen condition in this world. Even though we're redeemed, we have the promises of God, we are still suffering people. And the cross that King Jesus took is proof of his love for us, and he relates to us through that suffering. He became sin, conscious choice. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. He became all of the things that sin brought into this world that are a part of our reality. That's what his love looks like. And Paul would go on to say that we're able to now rejoice in the sufferings of Christ in Romans chapter 5. And in Philippians 3, he says that the way that we know him and the way we really, you really want to get the power of resurrection deep inside of you, you get it through suffering with Jesus. And that's not something that we have to be invited into, right? It's just something that we have to acknowledge and see Jesus in it with us, right? You're all suffering in your own ways, and we will continue to suffer. There is not such a thing as living in this world and not suffering. It's part of the fallen condition. And I think it's fair to, to say that until Christ returns, suffering, it's almost like this. It's, it's a dialect of the incarnation for us. It's, it's, it's one of the ways that God communicates to us in the deep places of life that really matter and really drive us and makes himself known there. If you're unwilling to know God in suffering, you'll scarcely know him at all because he is a God of suffering. Because he became sin and he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law and he bore the burden of sin 
Suffering means something eternal for us. It's not just a bad day. It's not just a bad year. It's how we know him, church. I love what this British pastor wrote during World War I. It's a poem called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shalito. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. Show us your suffering, he's saying. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign or kind of the secret password is what that means. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou and thou alone. He's the only one that has wounds like you. And he wants to relate to you through the wounds. That's one of the dialects of how Jesus relates to us through his incarnation. And why does Jesus have wounds? Because we have wounds. That's why Jesus has wounds. How might Jesus be speaking to you today through his own suffering? The announcement of the gospel, the crucified king, right? Those of us who are carrying massive wounds of pain on Mother's Day, we ask, where is Jesus? The gospel answers, he is near. He is suffering with us. He is preparing a place for us where pain will be no more. But until then, he wants to come to us in the suffering. The second thing that we got to ask ourselves is this, is not who is the king, but where do we find the king? The gospel is such good news. It's the, the king's gospel, his story of his conquering defeat that's come to us through evangelists, you know, these bringers of the good news throughout history, men and women like you. And they've made it known to the world. Now, the most challenging thing for all Christians is to continue in the good news with the good king, to finish the race. So let's see where we can find that king and choose to follow that king. Mark 1 goes on to say this in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the keyword wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So picture this. Out of the wilderness comes this prophet after 400 years of silence. And what happens? The whole region begins to flock to him. I'll get to his message in a minute, but what I want to first point out is something significant that I've already mentioned. It's the theme of the wilderness. When I think about the wilderness, I think about going up to North Georgia and hiking in the mountains where I can't hear any cars, right? That's what I think about. The wilderness to me seems to be a place that has a, an abundance of underdeveloped life. Some of you are like thinking about getting up there this afternoon now. I know you are. You think about tall pine trees, babbling creeks, waterfalls, an abundance of wildlife. The wilderness in our minds is a place of rest. This is not 
what the Bible is talking about when it says wilderness. This word can also be translated as desert. Now, the desert is a place where life is challenging to find, isn't it? The wilderness, the desert, is a place of desperation. There is no shelter. Things do not grow. The desert, which is what Isaiah prophesied about and John lived within, could not sustain life. The desert is defined by death, by thorns, by thirst, by loneliness, by extremes. So stay with that thought. In general, the people who have been transformed by God in the Bible have met God where? In the North Georgia mountains? In the wilderness, the desert. Let me prove my point here. Israel wasn't transformed in Egypt or in Jerusalem, but rather where? In the wilderness. He had to provide for their every need. Bread from the sky, water from the rock. They couldn't get it together enough, right? There wasn't enough resource. Moses wasn't transformed in the plush environment of Egypt, but rather in the wilderness after he fled the scene of a murder that he committed. Jacob wasn't transformed in his father's house with that beautiful coat and all that favor that he had, was he? But rather when he wrestled with God in the wilderness. Paul wasn't really transformed in the synagogue or really, I mean, he began to be transformed on the road to Damascus, right? He preached a little bit. But what does Paul do after he becomes a believer? He goes out in the wilderness of the Arabian desert for three years. That's where his life is transformed. Yet the wilderness is the very place we avoid at all costs. And it is the place where God meets us most deeply. So why is the wilderness the only way to be transformed? Because the wilderness strips away everything but God. He's all that's there in the wilderness. And we have to meet him when our deepest desires are him and him alone. The wilderness moments of life are moments when the Lord is all that there is. The wilderness moments of our lives are the moments where you're vulnerable and you're desperate for God's rescue. The wilderness moments of life are the moments when you and I are most aware of our sin and God's holiness, where we finally come to believe that there is a God and we are not him. That's what it's like to be in the wilderness. And not only that, that if my life is ever going to line up with God's will, I'm the one that has to change, not him. Have you ever had a wilderness experience before church? John's ministry was a wilderness ministry. It was a ministry that prepared the people of God for an encounter with God that must come from a wilderness-readied heart. So what is it in your life right now where God is offering you a wilderness experience that you just are running from? Have you ever stopped long enough to consider that you might be running from God? God meets us in the wilderness because it's there that we see that it's he and he alone that changes us. So lastly, as we close this up, how do we follow the king? How do we follow the king? This anointed king, Jesus, the son of God. So Isaiah prophesies, John's gonna prepare the way and the way to the king 
is through corporate, widespread, genuine repentance through a wilderness experience. But John is not only proclaiming repentance, he's also proclaiming this this baptism, this sign of repentance. Here's what he says in verse five. And all the, the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and where was he at? In the wilderness. They're leaving and they're going out to the wilderness to be baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he, I mean, he looked like a wilderness man, right? He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate wilderness food, right? There was no food in the wilderness. Locusts and wild honey. Pretty radical diet. I'd hate to see what his uh, hemoglobin A1C was through all that honey. But anyway, uh, pre-diabetic speaking here. Anyway, so, uh, so here's the picture. All these Jews were heading out to the wilderness regions of Judea, And John was not trying to make the wilderness more palatable for them. Ah. He didn't contextualize his attire to modern Judean fashion. He didn't try to soften the blow of his preparation of the way of Jesus. The people had to acknowledge their own wilderness to come face to face with John. They had to admit that they too were in the wilderness. Here's the thing about the Jewish view of baptism. Baptism was nothing new in Jewish culture. It was very common to wash yourself before entering into a time of worship. But the really important thing to notice about John's baptism that's very different is this. For the first time in known history, John's baptism of repentance was something that had to be done to you not by you. Most people think that the Christian life is about cleaning yourself up. And John, preparing the way of Jesus, says, no, you cannot clean yourself. You must be washed by Jesus. That's a very different story. And if we're honest, the tilt of our heart is to clean ourselves up instead of admitting and confessing and surrendering, Jesus, I need you to wash me. That's the foundation of a repentant and surrendered heart. So Jesus, the King, the Son of God, came for one reason, to liberate humanity from its bondage to decay and to save us. The baptism of repentance is about acknowledging and confessing our own complicity and guilt for the condition of the world in our own souls. We are the ones that are responsible. That's what repentance is about. It's about taking ownership of your complicity to the fall, about your agreements with Satan and the ways that you have destructed and destroyed others' lives through your own sinful nature. That is a hard message to get behind, isn't it? It's the only message that'll lead you to Jesus. If we're not willing to meet our Savior in repentance, we're not really willing to meet him at all. Acts 2.37 and 2.38, Peter's preaching and he says this. He's preached the gospel to them, what I've said to you basically here. And when they heard this, he says, they were cut to the heart. It was a hard message, hit them in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Don't baptize yourself. Don't try to clean yourself up. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit 
is the better life. It's the life you've always wanted to have in Jesus himself. But we have to let go of the old way of living in order to stay in step with this spirit that we've been given as a gift. So really the question that John offers to us today is this, are you desperate enough to admit that you're in the wilderness? Or are you bold enough to say, I'm running from the wilderness? And then do you have the courage to say, I'm running from Jesus? Maybe you came in dwelling in the wilderness, and maybe some of you in here this morning thought that that was actually a problem. You're like, man, I can't clean myself up enough. I'm, I, you don't have to tell me. I'm in the, I'm, it's obvious I'm in the wilderness. What I want to say to you is that you're more ready to meet Jesus than you could ever imagine, because he is in the wilderness, because he bore our wounds. He's with us to the end. On this side of glory, the wilderness proves to be the safest place of all. And why? Because when we're in the wilderness, we're close to Jesus. You know, everyone wanted John to become a celebrity after this. So, wow, we finally heard from God. They wanted him to go on book tours and all that kind of stuff. And he wouldn't have it, right? Here's what John said in verse 7 and 8 here. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. You have no idea. You have no idea who's to come. The strap of his sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you himself. Jesus' gift to us in our desperation is the gift of himself. Because we have the Spirit, we have another way to live. We don't have to wash ourselves. You know, I love Jesus' last interaction with his disciples in the upper room. It's the place where everybody should have stooped down to untie his sandals and wash his feet, like John says here. But instead, what does Jesus do? He doesn't hire a slave to wash their feet. He doesn't say, hey, boys, y'all wash your own feet. He stoops down, takes off his outer garment, picks up the towel, and begins to look them in the eyes and wash their feet because it would be an example of what he's been doing to them the entire time that they've been following him. This is the Jesus that we have come to know and serve and become like. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.